everyone. Welcome to this reading of the Council Bluffs Daily non This is for Monday, February 27th, and we'll be bringing you the Sunday edition because there's not an edition printed on Monday. But before we get into the headlines, let's take a check of your forecast here from the National Weather Service. This afternoon, mostly sunny conditions, winds out of the northwest gusting as high as 26 miles per hour, so kind of breezy out there. A high near 48 degrees for your Monday. Tonight, expect increasing clouds with winds from the northwest shifting to come from the northeast after midnight, the low around 28 degrees. Tuesday, mostly cloudy, a high near 47. Tuesday night, partly cloudy, a low around 31. Wednesday, mostly sunny, a high near 48. With those winds from the southwest moving to come from the northwest in the afternoon, up to 22 miles per hour, cooling us down a little bit. We'll see a low around 27 degrees for Wednesday night into Thursday, where you can expect a 20% chance of snow in the afternoon Thursday. Mostly cloudy conditions Thursday with a high near 39. But again, for your Monday afternoon, mostly sunny, a high near 48 with breezy conditions. Taking a look now at the Headlines for the Sunday edition here of the Council Bluffs Daily non Lewis Central School Board Facilities Assessment presented. Also, state error leads to wrong tax returns. Iowa legislature funnel week nears. So there's lots of stories to talk about here. The headline photos show fish fry season kicks off at St. Patrick. That would have been on Friday. And it shows volunteers Dick Janusik, Don Morse, Mike McAvoy, and Francis Clark breading and battering uh, and frying fish and shrimp during the first fish fry of the Lenten season there at St. Patrick Catholic Church happened in Council Bluffs on Friday. And boy, is that good stuff. Another photo below shows Francis Clark and another volunteer doing the very same, battering up some of those shrimp. That looks truly wonderful. It's one of the best times about this time of the year is all that fish fry goodness. Moving on to our front page headline and story. Facilities assessment presented as from the Lewis Central School Board. This story by Tim Johnson. Representatives from Shive Hattery Architecture and Engineering presented findings from its assessment of Lewis Central Community School District's school facilities completed January 1st. The Lewis Central Board of Education approved a professional services agreement with the firm in November for assessment of the district school buildings, Lewis Central Middle and High School and Titan Hill Intermediate School, along with Kreft Primary School, for a fee of $35,000. Shive Hattery made recommendations on what needs to be done in the short term, such as the critical, medium term, the plan length, and then long term maintenance length projects. Things such as broken or failed equipment were classified as critical. Eventual replacement of systems and materials were designated plan and long-term maintenance work was labeled maintain. The report did not include any information on possible expansions or additions, Superintendent Brent Hosing said. All these numbers are just to take our current facilities and make them whole again, he said. According to Shive Hattery's evaluation, critical needs and estimated costs include replacement of high school and middle school roofs at $3.2 and $2.7 million, respectively, pool upgrades at Titan Hill, $5 million, restoration of high school and middle school pavement, $1.5 million each, installation of secure entrances at the high school and Kreft, $1 million, 
Improved drop-off areas at the high school, that's a million dollars. The middle school, $500,000, and Kreft, $500,000. Replace the HVAC equipment at Titan Hill. That's $300,000, and Kreft at $250,000. Make ADA improvements at all schools, $500,000. Repair exterior metal at Titan Hill, $500,000. Replace sidewalks and stoops at Titan Hill, $500,000. Fix roof drains at middle school, $500,000. One last note here is to repair leaks and water damage, replace drains, sewers, outdated equipment and controls, upgrade kitchen in Titan Hill, and make various other repairs and changes. Addressing all of the critical needs would cost about $21.2 million, Shive Hattery estimated. Medium and long-range needs would include the high school at $10.05 million, middle school at $15.4 million, Titan Hill $11.4 million, and Kreft $9.1 million for a total estimated of $45.95 million, the firm estimated. If all the recommended work were completed, it could total as much as an estimated $67.15 million. Lewis Central receives about $3.15 million a year in revenue from the Secure and Advanced Vision for Education sales tax and $2.2 million per year from the district's physical plant and equipment levy, according to Andrea Ray's business manager. The Lewis Central Board of Education will meet with Shive Hattery representatives during a work session on February 28th, which is tomorrow, to discuss the improvements in more detail, as well as possible expansions that might be needed in the long term. The assessment and the resulting discussions will eventually lead to the development of new master facilities plan of a new master facilities plan. Hosting also suggested holding fa uh, facility meetings with the staff and community. In other news, state error leads to wrong tax returns. This story by Aaron Murphy of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Hundreds of Iowans did not get their correct federal tax refund due to a clerical error by the state revenue department. The department confirmed Friday, and state money will be used to fix the mistake. A spokesman for the Iowa Department of Revenue said the department in January sent a file to the IRS that contained incorrect data for some Iowa taxpayers. Once the error was discovered, a corrected file was sent to the IRS. But in the meantime, as a result of the error, roughly 300,000 Iowans who had filed their 2022 federal tax returns did not receive the correct federal refund this year, the spokesman said. The State Revenue Department has begun refunding the correct amount to those taxpayers using state funds and is confirming errors in working with affected taxpayers to resolve the issue, the spokesman said. We apologize for these errors and are working diligently to make it right as quickly as we can, said the department spokesman John Fuller. Fuller did not immediately have the total dollar amount of state funds needed to address the error. WOITV in Des Moines first reported the error last Thursday. Last fall, the Iowa Department of Revenue failed to notice a legislative oversight to amend state law to account for property tax changes signed into law in 2013 and 2021. As a result, the department issued an erroneous calculation, which local governments used to set their property tax rates. 
If left unfixed, that would have left residential property owners on the hook for about $130 million more in taxes than they should have under the law's original intent. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and state lawmakers earlier this month approved a fix, which also creates a shortfall in expected revenue for cities, counties, school boards, and other local taxing entities, which are in the throes of finalizing their fiscal 2024 budgets. Our final front page story, Iowa legislature funnel week nears pipelines, LGBTQ education among priorities. This written by Caleb McAuliffe and Aaron Murphy of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau, Dateline Des Moines. Iowa House Republicans plan on moving a bill that would put limits on planned carbon dioxide pipeline constructions out of a committee before a key legislative deadline next week. The bill is one of several high-profile bills that would need to pass a full committee vote before the funnel deadline on Friday, after which only bills that have been passed out of a committee can be considered. Budget and tax policy bills are exempt from the funnel, and legislative leaders have ways to maneuver around it if they want to introduce new bills or bring back old bills later in the session. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said he expects the pipeline bill will pass through the Judiciary Committee next week. We didn't file a bill without trying to move it forward, he told reporters on Thursday. That's not our expectation. The bill would prevent pipeline companies from receiving eminent domain authority unless they have secured 90% of the route of the pipeline through voluntary easements and blocks the projects until a federal regulator announces new safety regulations. It also requires the companies to be in compliance with all local zoning ordinances along the path, receive permits from other states along the route before being granted one in Iowa, and provides more compensation options for landowners who do have their land taken through eminent domain. But its chances of being considered in the Senate are unclear, where other pipeline proposals have not been given hearings. What other bills will make it through the funnel? Grassley didn't name other specific bills that he expects to pass through the committees next week, but he said the House will be advancing some of the Republicans' priority bills ahead of the funnel. We've laid out a lot of pieces early in session that were priorities, he said. Some of those have seen action, some have not. So I think you're just going to see a broad amount of bills. Democrats criticized the bills that have already gone through the committee process or are on the docket next week as unproductive and ignoring the needs of Iowans. While the Republican majority has been focused on things like banning books and punishing teachers in the classroom and sending public money to private schools, we've been ignoring critical issues like child care, health care access, affordable housing, and the things that Iowans really care about, says House Democratic leader Jennifer Confers to Windsor Heights, who told reporters that on Thursday. LGBTQ book topics in school. I Republicans have moved several bills that would limit instruction around gender identity and sexual orientation in schools and require parental notification if a student wants to go by a different set of pronouns. But a similar proposal from Governor Kim Reynolds has not yet cleared a committee. A subcommittee advanced Reynolds' Senate Study Bill 1145 on Thursday, which would prohibit teaching about gender identity and sexual activity in kindergarten through third grade and would require schools to tell parents if they believe a student is transgender. It also hits on school transparency and library book rules that Republicans have been considering this year. 
It would put any book successfully removed from one school library on a statewide removal list that requires parents' permission to check out at all other schools in the state and requires school districts to put their course materials online. Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls, Democrat of Coralville, said the bill proposes heavy-handed requirements that go against basic Iowa values. He says it will require more school bureaucracy that will not accomplish the bill's stated purpose of more parental involvement, he said. Grassley said the bills restricting LGBTQ topics and library materials at school are being introduced with the goal of involving parents in education and keeping instruction age appropriate. A lot of times our objectives in these pieces of legislation are empowering the parents to be able to make these kinds of decisions for and with their students, Grassley said. Drug sales resulting in death. Reynolds and Attorney General Brenna Byrd, both Republicans, proposed separate bills that would increase the charge for a drug sale that results in a death, but the proposals are likely to be combined before moving through a committee next week. Senator Brad Zahn, Republican of Urbandale, who chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, said this week Byrd's office was planning to submit an agreement between the two bills, but he said he hadn't seen the proposal as of Thursday. We are going to run a bill. I would probably guess it will probably be the governor's bill because it was more expansive than the attorney general's, he said. Reynolds' bill, House Study Bill 104, would heighten penalties for selling fentanyl. It would also triple the sentence for the sale of the drug that results in the death of another person. A person who manufactures drugs in the presence of a minor would be subject to twice the sentence. The bill also expands the availability of naloxone, a drug used to reverse the effects of an overdose. I think it's actually a stronger bill by the time we brought the two together, Reynolds said. Uh, She told that to reporters last week. They had some great enhancements to the language that we put in place. Child labor laws. Well, Republicans must decide whether to advance a proposal to relax Iowa's child labor laws. Under the proposal, 16- and 17-year-olds could serve drinks at a bar or restaurant, and 14- through 17-year-olds could work in manufacturing, meat lockers, and construction with parental consent and a state waiver. Each of the twin bills, Senate File 167 and House Study Bill 134, has passed out of subcommittee, but neither has been approved by the chamber's respective committees on workforce in the Senate and commerce in the House. Republicans who approved the proposals in subcommittee said the bills would help businesses find workers in a tight employment market and to help young Iowans become more engaged in work. We're going to end up with a generation of skilled leaders because of these efforts, said Senator Jason Schultz, Republican of Schleswig. Democrats who opposed the proposal warned that it could be perilous to allow younger Iowans to work in some of the jobs permitted in the bills. My hope is that this bill does not advance through the funnel this next week, and then we can get back to focusing kids on actually having rewarding, enriching childhoods and that their employment opportunities are age-appropriate and are safe, Walls said. Well, there's that absolute buzzkill, because we all, uh, well, maybe you didn't want to work when you were 14, but some of us wanted to get done with school so we could go actually do something. All right, moving on now to our second page, page A2, here in this reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. Face of the day, Clover the dog. Clover is a five-year-old female plot hound and boxer mix who is currently available for adoption at Midlands Humane Society. Shelter staff members say she is a daring girl who can be a bit nervous when she first meets people, but quickly shows you how sweet she can be. 
She knows basic commands and is ready to brighten up her future household. Clover's adoption fee is $225, which covers a microchip altering an age-appropriate vaccines. In other shelter news, Midlands and Leadership Council Bluffs are teaming up to host Discs for Dogs, a disc golf fundraiser tournament to benefit the shelter at Iowa Western Community College on May 6th. The tournament begins at 9 a.m. and will take place at the Treasure Cove Disc Golf Course on campus. The fun and fundraising will continue the next weekend at Midland's annual gala and will take place at the Midland or Mid-America Center on May 12th. Registration and other information for both events can be found on the Midlands website. Bill votes by Iowans who register on Election Day provisional. This next story by Aaron Murphy of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Any vote cast by an Iowan who registers on Election Day would be automatically considered provisional until officials could verify the voter's information a second time under legislation advanced Thursday by Republican state lawmakers. The provision is one of three elections laws changes proposed by Iowa Senator Sandy Salmon, a Republican from Janesville, and advanced by Salmon and fellow Republican Senator Jason Schultz of Schleswig. Under the other proposals, all ballots would be recorded, preserved, and be considered public information, including which candidates were selected, but without any of the voters' identifying information, and Iowans could challenge voter registration information across county lines. Salmon and Schultz advanced the bills after hearing public testimony from Iowans who said that the proposals are needed to ensure the government list of Iowa voters is accurate and current and to prevent election fraud. Michael Bayer from Waterloo testified on all three bills via video conferencing. He said activists like him are trying to ensure Iowa's voter registration information is accurate. Every ineligible voter on voter rolls is an opportunity for bad actors to request an absentee ballot in that voter's name, Bayer said, although the state has other extensive steps in place to prevent mail-in voter fraud. By state law, including some that have been passed by Republicans in recent years, any Iowan who votes by mail must be registered to vote and must provide his or her date of birth, residential address, a driver's license number or government-approved voter identification number, and a signature. If for some odd reason, if they would decide to take one of those names and request an absentee ballot, we go through and we check and we verify identification to make sure and certify that the person requesting is the person that is registered to vote, said Jamie Cashman, a lobbyist for the Iowa State Association of County Auditors, the organization that represents the county officials who administer Iowa's elections. Cashman said the proposal to allow Iowans to file voter registration challenges across county lines could place unnecessary workload burdens on those county elections officials. Under current law, Iowans can challenge the voter registration of a registered voter who resides in the same county. Some activist groups have recently filed massive challenges to voter registration information, including in Iowa. Hundreds of Iowa voters' registrations were challenged in Lynn and Blackhawk counties last fall, roughly two months before the November election. The number of registration challenges in those counties were extraordinarily higher than usual, county elections officials said. In Blackhawk County, all but two of the 570 challenge registrations were to voters whose status was inactive, meaning they had not voted in the 2020 election, officials there said. In Lynn County, officials said it appears a majority of the challenged registrations belong to voters who moved out of state, 
State law requires the opportunity for a 10-minute hearing for any Iowa voter whose registration has been challenged. That's our fundamental concern is being able to let people go from county to county, making hundreds of requests that really put an unneeded burden on county auditors and their staff, Cashman said. In the Iowa House elections law legislation proposed by Representative Bobby Kaufman, a Republican from Wilton, includes a provision that would require a bond payment on any voter registration challenge. Kaufman said the provision was requested by auditors. I'm trying to thread the line between making sure that people have the ability to object and challenge while also ensuring that auditors are able to do their job free of very large financial obligations stemming from challenges, Kaufman said. Kaufman's proposal, House File 356, 356, passed the House's State Government Committee Thursday and is now eligible for debate by the full Iowa House. On Election Day registration in Salmon's bill, Cashman said a second verification is not needed because the initial voter registration is designed to confirm the voter's identity. Salmon's proposals, Senate Files 341, 342, and 351, are now eligible for consideration by the full Senate Committee on State Government. Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate was not available late Thursday for reaction. All right, that takes care of page A2. Moving on now to page A6 and more Iowa news. Wolf CO2 Pipeline Won't Seek Eminent Domain Petition States. It's written by Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. Not of the non-prill, but of the Gazette. It begins... Wolf Carbon Solutions will not use eminent domain to acquire easements for a carbon dioxide pipeline through eastern Iowa, according to the company's permit application filed Thursday with the Iowa Utilities Board. The decision to obtain all the land for the pipeline route through voluntary easements sets the Wolf Project apart from two other proposed CO2 pipelines in Iowa and sidesteps the most contentious aspect of the pipeline development. The Wolf Development Team has never used eminent domain in its collective careers in building long-haul pipelines, and it doesn't intend to start now, says Nick Noppinger, Wolf's Vice President for Corporate Development. He told that to the Gazette. The company has not yet signed any easement deals, he said. In our history of developing pipelines, we feel it's more important to develop relationships with all the people and the right of way pathway before we start talking to them about easements, he said. We'll begin negotiations on easements in the next couple months. Wolf's proposal calls for collecting compressed carbon dioxide at ADM plants in Cedar Rapids and Clinton and shipping it to a 16-inch underground pipeline to ADM sequestration site near Decatur, Illinois. Wolf wants to find other industrial clients to tie into the project, which would be eligible for up to $1 billion a year in federal tax credits. The 280-mile project with 95 miles in Iowa would provide $1.1 billion in economic development for Iowa, Wolf officials said at an informational meeting December 5th in Cedar Rapids. In Lynn County, there would be 311 jobs during construction of the pipeline, bringing in $22 million, they said. Iowa has two other proposed CO2 pipeline projects that already have applied for permits from regulators. Summit Carbon Solutions proposes a five-state pipeline with 680 miles in northern and western Iowa, and that would end at a sequestration site in North Dakota. The Iowa Utilities Board last week released a schedule. They released a schedule calling for the public hearing on the Summit project to happen between October and January. 
Navigator CO2 Ventures wants to build a 1,300-mile underground pipeline with 900 Iowa miles stretching from the northwest to southeast corners of the state. Both of those companies have asked the Iowa Utilities Board to be granted the right to use eminent domain to force easements with compensation from landowners who don't sell willingly. Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance Director Doug Newman said in August the organization supports a carbon dioxide pipeline that would benefit ADM, one of its members, despite opposition from many landowners on the proposed route. We have looked at this project and our organization supports this project and only this CO2 pipeline project in Iowa at this time, Newman said. To support the agribusiness economy of Iowa, we need companies like ADM to be successful. ADM, which has been producing ethanol since 1980, operates a heavy volume wet mill and a dry mill, as well as a cogernation. I hope I'm saying that right. Cogernation. That's a new word for me plant just south of Highway 30 in Cedar Rapids. Besides ethanol, the company produces starches, sweeteners, and animal feed. The Cedar Rapids site employs 450 people with another 200 and 300 skilled trade contractors on site, officials told the Gazette in October. The Wolf Project has a lot of local opponents, including people who posted signs against it near Eli. More than 150 people attended a rally February 21st at the Iowa Capitol denouncing the pipeline projects. Concerns include fear of explosions, landowner rights, and uncertainty about what happens after the pipeline's 20-year lifespan. Iowa House Republicans advanced House File 368, which would require CO2 pipeline companies to obtain 90% of the miles along their path through voluntary easements. The bill also would place a moratorium on projects until the Federal Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration develops new rules that govern the hazardous pipelines. Our next story, another story that's uh, been imported from the Gazette. Regent Report finds universities have $15 billion in impact. One out of every 10 jobs in Iowa is supported by Regent's campuses. This written by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette. With lawmakers in the throes of deciding how much money to appropriate Iowa's public universities for the upcoming budget year, the Board of Regents this week released a new economic impact report showing its campuses collectively added $14.9 billion to the state's economy in the 2022 budget year. The combined impact from the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa Operations Construction Healthcare, economic development, research activities, visitor and student spending, volunteerism, and alumni support is equal to about 7% of the state's gross state product, the report said. Educational institutions are like beekeepers, according to the report, while their principal aim is to provide education and raise people's earnings. In the process, they create an array of external benefits. Students' health and lifestyles are improved, and society indirectly benefits just as orchard owners indirectly benefit from beekeepers. The study conducted by Lightcast, which did the region's first economic impact study in 2018, found the university's total economic impact equal to supporting 198,837 jobs. For perspective, this means that one out of every 10 jobs in Iowa is supported by the activities of the universities and their students, according to the study, 
which doesn't take into account the campus's extension and outreach activities. Last week, Iowa's public university president sat before the Iowa House Education Appropriations Subcommittee in defense of their ask for $34.7 million more in education appropriations for the upcoming 2024 budget year, marking the region's largest funding increase ask in nearly a decade. Lawmakers haven't granted the board's full appropriations request in years and even cut appropriations in 2020. Should they appropriate the full amount this year, total education appropriations for the regents would rise from 575.9 to $610.5 million. That, according to the Economic Impact Study, would be money well spent. For every tax dollar spent on educating students attending the universities, taxpayers will receive an average of $2.70 in return over the course of the students' working lives, according to the study. A breakdown of the region's $14.9 billion economic impact includes $2.3 billion from operations spending, including $1.9 billion spent paying tens of thousands of employees, $117.8 million generated through construction spending, $2 billion added through University of Iowa hospitals and clinics spending, including to pay employees and support operations, $607.6 million added through research spending, including on payroll. $2.3 billion added through economic development, including the university's creation of startup and spinoff companies. $179.8 million in visitor spending, like on hotels, restaurants, and gas. $166.2 million in student spending, like on housing and other living expensive expenses. $96.5 million in volunteerism from students and employees who gave nearly 2 million hours of their time in fiscal 2021. And finally, $7.2 billion in alumni contributions, with hundreds of thousands staying in Iowa for work post-graduation. The last economic impact report the board commissioned in the 2018 budget year found its institution had an $11.8 billion boon for the state, the board paid Lightcast $132,000 for its work on the new report and $118,000 for its 2018 report. Social savings. Beyond straight economics, according to both studies, Iowa's public universities benefit students, taxpayers, and society at large. For their investment into tuition, books, supplies, and loans, students yield a return of $5.40 and higher future earnings for every dollar they spent at the Iowa universities, correlating to an annual rate of return of 16%, according to the new report. Put another way, over a working lifetime, benefits of a bachelor's degree will amount to $1 million in higher earnings than a high school diploma or equivalent. Iowa will also benefit from an estimated $814.4 million in present value social savings related to reduced crime, lower welfare and unemployment, and increased health and well-being across the state, according to the study. Breaking down social savings into three categories, health, crime, and income assistance, the analysis tallied avoided costs that otherwise would have been drawn from private and public resources absent the education provided by the universities. Under health-related savings, the report estimated educated Iowans saved the state $671.6 million due to a reduced demand for medical treatment and social services, improved worker productivity, 
and reduced absenteeism and a reduced number of vehicles, crashes, and fires induced by alcohol or smoking-related incidents. It's estimated $133.9 million in crime savings, including uh, savings associated with fewer crime victims, added worker productivity, and reduced expenditures for police and law enforcement, courts and administration of justice, and corrective services. Regarding income assistance, the report found $8.9 million in savings stemming from a reduced number of persons in need of welfare or unemployment benefits. Well, and it looks like we're well past the halfway mark here in this reading of the Council Bluffs Daily non for this Monday, February the 27th, 2023 AD. We're reading the Sunday, February 26th edition here because they don't print an edition on Monday. So I'm bringing you the Sunday edition here. This is Andrew Haupt from Iris filling in for the Drake students who... I don't know, something happened today. They couldn't quite uh, get it to us. There were some interruptions. One person got sick. And uh, anyway, all I have to say is I'm here filling in. Glad to be here with you on Iris, the Iowa Radio, Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Don't forget all of our programs heard on Iris are intended for the use of our audience. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, Feel free to give us a call at 515-243-6833 or toll-free from across the state, 1-877-404-4747. Now let's take a look at our obituaries here for this Sunday edition. It's airing here on Monday afternoon, February the 27th. We're almost to March already. Can anybody believe that? I sure can't. We start off with David Dave Lustgraf who was born May 10th, 1946, and passed away on February 23rd, 2023. David Dave Riley Lustgraf, age 76, son of Barbara Pinkerton and Harold Ark Lustgraf, was born May 10th, 1946, in Greeley, Colorado. He passed away on Thursday, February 23rd, 2023, at his home in Polk City, Iowa. Dave graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School in Council Bluffs in 1964. He married the love of his life, Janice Hopkins, on August 20th, 1965 in Council Bluffs. The couple began their family together and resided in Council Bluffs. Dave was a meat cutter for Safeway for 19 years before opening the Minden Meat Market in Minden, Iowa, where they worked closely together until they retired in 1996 and moved to Polk City. After settling in Polk City, Dave became a truck driver for Green Products in Conrad, Iowa. He did this for the next 20 years and retired again. He then went to work for TMC Transportation as a truck driver until April of 2020, and he retired for the last time. Dave's favorite hobbies were his wife, fishing, and spending time with his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. He is survived by his son, Patrick, known as Pat, married to Cheryl Lustgraf of Carter Lake, Iowa, daughter Laura, married to Scott Krause. Her last name is Larson. They're of Panora, Iowa. Grandchildren, Sean, married to Emily Lustgraf, Emma Larson, Cade Larson, and Luke Lustgraf. Great-grandchildren, Jovi, Nora, and Caleb Lustgraf. Sisters, Judy Bryant and Jan Baum, both of Lincoln, Nebraska, Brother Scott Lustgraf of Colon, Nebraska. Brother-in-law, Jerry, along with Beverly Hopkins, and nephews and nieces. He was preceded in death by his parents, wife Janice in 2016, and daughter Julie Lustgraf. 
Visitation will be held Saturday, March 4, 2023, from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Twig Funeral Home in Panora. His cremains will be buried in Council Bluffs at a later date. Memorial contributions may be directed to the Salvation Army in Dave's memory. From there we go to Jack L. Powers, age 91, passed away at Midlands Living Center February 22, 2023. He was born September 26, 1931 to Arnold and Dorothy Hainline Powers in Albia, Iowa. Jack proudly served his country in the United States Navy. In addition to his parents, he was preceded in death by his stepfather, Clay Long, son-in-law, Albert Homer, brother, Bill Powers, stepbrother, Gene Long, stepsister, Grace Randall. Jack was survived by his wife of 69 years, Joanne Powers, children, Jack married to Nancy Powers, Gary married to Ann Powers, Julie Homer and Joni married to Charlie Huddleston, six grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home, Monday, February 27, 2023. Funeral service will be held at 10 a.m. at the Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home, Tuesday, February 28, 2023. Interment will be in the Ridgewood Cemetery. The family will direct memorials. From there we go to Kent L. Hensley. Kent L. Hensley, age 64, passed away February 22, 2023, in Omaha, Nebraska. Kent was born in Council Bluffs on November 16, 1958, to Edward and Alberta Hensley and attended Thomas Jefferson High School. He worked construction and is preceded in death by his parents and brothers Marty, Ricky, and Scott. Survivors include sister Jeanette, married to Fred Wolf, brothers Eddie, Terry, Terry's married to Teresa, Todd Hensley, Sisters Lisa Hensley, Pila Allen, many nieces and nephews. Memorial visitation is uh, what happened yesterday, 4 to 6 p.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home. And then our final obituary listed is for Ramona L. Moore. Ramona L. Moore, age 71, was born January 21st, 1952, and passed away on February 23rd, 2023. She is survived by children Robin Helm, married to Scott, Jeremy Jassa, married to Sarah, Matthew Jassa, grandchildren Gavin, Ethan, Emily, and Olivia. Visitation is Monday, February 27th from 4 to 6 p.m., followed by a funeral service at 6 p.m., both at the Bellevue Memorial Funeral Chapel. Memorials will be directed by the family. That's all we have for obituaries for this section. We move on now to an opinion piece. But first, a story here is very interesting about Dilbert. This uh, whole controversy going on with this cartoon. Media dropped Dilbert after hate group remark. This written by David E. Lieb of the Associated Press. The creator of Dilbert comic strip faced a backlash of cancellation Saturday while defending remarks describing people who are black as members of a hate group from which white people should get away. Various media publishers across the U.S. denounced the comments by Dilbert creator Scott Adams as racist, hateful, and discriminatory while saying they would no longer provide a platform for his work. Andrews McNeil Syndication, which distributes Dilbert, did not immediately respond Saturday to request for comment, but Adams defended himself on social media against those who said, hate me and are canceling me. Dilbert is a long-running comic that pokes fun at office place culture. 
The backlash began following an episode this past week of the YouTube show Real Coffee with Scott Adams. Among other topics, Adams referenced a Rasmussen Report survey that asked whether people agreed with a statement, it's okay to be white. Most agree, but Adams noted 26% of black respondents disagreed and others weren't sure. The Anti-Defamation League says the phrase was popularized in 2017 as a trolling campaign by members of the discussion forum 4chan, but then some white supremacists started using it. Adams, who is white, repeatedly referred to people who are black as members of a hate group or a racist hate group and said he would no longer help black Americans. Based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people, Adams said in his Wednesday show. In another episode of his online show Saturday, Adams said he was making a point that everyone should be treated as an individual without discrimination. But you should also avoid any group that doesn't respect you, even if they, if there are people within the group who are fine, Adams said. Los Angeles Times cited Adams' racist comments while announcing Saturday that Dilbert will be discontinued Monday and most editions and that its final run in the Saturday comics, which are printed in advance, will be March 12th. The San Antonio Express News, which is part of Hearst Newspapers, said Saturday that it will drop the Dilbert comic strip effective Monday because of hateful or discriminatory public comments by its creator. The USA Today Network tweeted Friday that it also will stop publishing Dilbert due to recent discriminatory comments by its creator, they said. The Plain Dealer in Cleveland and other publications that are part of the advanced local media group also announced they are dropping Dilbert. This is a decision based on the principles of this news organization and the community we serve, that wrote Chris Quinn, editor of The Plain Dealer. We are not a home for those who espouse racism. We certainly do not want to provide them with financial support. Christopher Kelly, vice president of content for NJ Advanced Media, wrote that the news organization believes in the free and fair exchange of ideas. But when those ideas cross into hate speech, he wrote, a line must be drawn. I'm sure someone else will pick it up. All right, our uh, next story here, a very interesting one here out of this area, is Buffett touts buyback benefits as they had some losses last year. We'll learn more. This story written by Josh Funk of Omaha, Nebraska. Billionaire Warren Buffett said critics of stock buybacks are either an economic, illiterate, or a silver-tongued demagogue, or both, and all investors benefit from them as long as they are at the right prices. Buffett used part of his annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders Saturday to tout the benefits of repurchases that fiery Wall Street critics like Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and many other Democrats love to criticize. The federal government even added a 1% tax on buybacks this year after they ballooned roughly $1 trillion in 2022. When you are told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders or to the country or particularly beneficial to CEOs, you are listening to either an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue, characters that are not mutually exclusive, wrote Buffett, who himself is a longtime Democrat. Investor Cole Smead said Washington, D.C. should take note of Buffett's view on buybacks. Any politician, regardless of the aisle's side, should stand up and be at attention to a statement like that, said Smead, who is with Phoenix-based Smead Capital Management. 
Buffett used his typical self-deprecating style to say Berkshire's remarkable record of doubling the returns of the S&P 500 over the last 58 years with him at the helm is a result of only about a dozen truly good decisions. That would be about one every five years. He recounted a few of those in his letter, but kept his message, which has been long one of his best-read documents in the business world, remarkably, remarkably brief this year, a little over eight pages. He devoted an entire page to tribute to his 99-year-old partner, Charlie Munger. Buffett pointed out how much Berkshire benefits from dividends it receives from huge investments in its portfolio, such as Coca-Cola and American Express, even though he refuses to pay a dividend at the Omaha-Nebraska-based conglomerate he leads because he believes he can generate a bigger return for shareholders by investing that cash. Coke paid Berkshire $704 million in dividends last year, and American Express added $302 million. And those payments helped push the value of those stakes to $25 billion for Coke and $22 billion for American Express. Berkshire paid $1.3 billion for each of those investments in the 1990s. Buffett said the key lesson for investors is that it takes just a few winners to work wonders. And yes, it helps to start early and live into your 90s as well. All right, as promised earlier, the opinion section now here in this Sunday edition of the Council Bluffs Daily non And I'm reading your views because all this stuff in here, it's all national opinion, except for what you all wrote into the paper or Whoever wrote in the paper, anyway, I have CEO of the Food Bank for Heartland, also Barb Kalbach of Adair County. So these are local opinions. We'll stick with these. SNAP provides a critical lifeline for Iowans. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, is an important safety net for low-income Heartland families. It is one of the most effective and efficient programs to help connect our neighbors across Iowa with the food they need to survive and thrive. For every meal provided through Feeding America, the nation's largest domestic hunger relief organization, and its partner Food Banks, SNAP can provide nine. The program also provides a boost to the state economy, bringing federal dollars to local growers, retailers, and communities. Proposals to restrict access to this vital resource, such as those included within bills introduced by the Iowa House such as House File 3 and Senate Study Bill 1105, will harm families and undermine community, state, and national efforts to address, address rather food insecurity. According to Feeding America, one in 14 Iowans, including one in nine children, is facing hunger. At Food Bank of the Heartland, we've seen a steady increase in the numbers of individuals seeking food assistance in western Iowa. With the lingering effects of the pandemic and skyrocketing prices on food and everyday essentials, children, families, seniors, and veterans are facing a perfect storm of challenges. During the pandemic, additional temporary government assistance programs were created to help families afford food. Many of those programs have now expired. Meanwhile, inflation has disproportionately impacted low-income Iowans, with thousands of of our neighbors now facing impossible choices, we must protect SNAP and its ability to effectively fight hunger in every Iowa community. 
There are several long-standing requirements in place to receive SNAP benefits, including income guidelines. These complex requirements can be difficult for applicants to understand and navigate, and the latest bills propose additional unnecessary and harmful requirements that can prevent those in need from even applying for the program. I'm particularly concerned with the asset testing language in House File 3 and Senate Study Bill 1105, which would penalize Iowa households for having even meager savings or more than one vehicle to get to and from work. This requirement will also increase the state's administrative cost and place additional burden on the state's food banks and pantries, which are already struggling to address the growing needs across Iowa. To help protect this vital program and its many benefits, I'm asking for your support in opposing House File 3 and Senate Study Bill 1105. Please reach out to your elected officials at the state level and ask them to oppose any legislation that attempts to cut SNAP assistance that is needed now more than ever. No one should face, no one in Iowa should face hunger. The SNAP is the most effective anti-hunger program in the United States in our community's first line of defense against hunger, providing food benefits that are timely, targeted, and temporary for households in need. Please join me in advocating for SNAP and our neighbors in need across the heartland. It's written by Brian Barks, President and CEO of the Food Bank for the Heartland. From there we go to please pass Senate File 101. During the last two years, one of the biggest issues facing rural Iowa has been the ridiculous corporate agribusiness proposal to build a statewide network of CO2 pipelines. Thousands of farmers and landowners have rallied to oppose these unnecessary projects. Right now, it's up to the three-member governor-appointed Iowa Utilities Board on whether or not to allow private pipeline companies to use eminent domain for their own profit. That's why Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement and Allies support Senate File 101, which bans the use of eminent domain for hazardous liquid pipelines. At community meetings all over the state, hundreds of regular people continue to show up and speak out against the corporate agribusiness power grab. CO2 pipeline companies are spending big bucks to market their pipe dream as a benefit to the ethanol industry and environment, but Iowans are smarter than that. We're not buying what they're selling. We know that the CO2 pipeline industry is nothing more than an attempted dash for cash that put our farms, our land, our homes, and the public health at great risk. The pipeline sales pitch is a well-funded public relations campaign attempting to overcome this broad opposition. Public opinion polling has found that more than 80% of Iowans are opposed to IUB granting eminent domain authority for the pipelines. That's a steep hill to climb and a testament to the grassroots groups who are organizing on the ground to counter the slick ads and marketing materials. While this opposition might be a surprise to some in the corporate boardrooms, in my corner of the world, I'm yet to meet a pipeline supporter. Farmers and landowners understand that there's millions of dollars on the table, but only for those agribusiness companies who will profit if the pipelines are allowed to be built. At its core, this is an issue that was created by politics and policy. Federal tax credits and incentives for underground storage of CO2 are the economic driver for these schemes, and the construction is only possible if IUB grants these developers the ability to seize private property through eminent domain, which is why it will take action by the by Iowa's political leaders to step in and say no to the Summit Carbon Solutions, Navigator CO2, and Wolf slash ADM pipelines. 
Eminent domain should not be used for private gain. That's why Senate File 101, introduced by Senator Jeff Taylor, Republican of Sioux Center, must be passed out of the Senate Commerce Committee by March 3rd to remain viable during this legislative session. Whether Republican, Democrat, or Independent, all Iowans deserve basic protections from corporations seizing our farms and lands so they can profit from political games. We need our senators and representatives, as well as the IUB, to stand with public opinion, grassroots leaders, and common sense. That written by Barb Kalbach of Adair County, Iowa, fourth-generation family farmer, registered nurse, and board member of Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement. All right, with that being read and said, we move on now to some sports briefly. In boys basketball news, Lions shut down Vikings in the sub-state final. This was written by Austin Heinen. Des Moines Christian went on a 16-0 run that spanned through the final minutes of the first quarter and the majority of the second quarter to defeat the Vikings 47-36 in Saturday night's sub-state 7 final in Adel. The Vikings came out with an early statement in the form of an 8-2 run to start the game. However, the Viking offense got ice cold for the rest of the first half while the Lions went on a 16-0 run. The Vikings wouldn't get another field goal shot down until a minute 18 remained in the second quarter. You got to credit Des Moines Christian. Vikings coach Gigi Harris said, I thought we came out well, but they responded. After the response, we didn't respond in the timely fashion that we needed to. We cut it down to five going into the half, but then they came out on another run. We couldn't limit their runs, and they got some things too easy on the offensive end, and we didn't create enough easy looks on our end, which made things very difficult for us. The Vikings would score another basket to trim the deficit down to five points as they headed into the half. The offensive woes continued for the Vikes in the third quarter, as the Lions went on an 8-2 run to start the second half and led by as much as 11 points on multiple occasions in the third quarter and early fourth quarter. However, the Vikings pulled with five points with just a minute 11 to play. However, the Lions made a dagger three as the shot clock expired with about 45 seconds left to play, and the Vikings weren't able to put any more points on the board for the rest of the contest. Though this wasn't the end, this team was looking for. Harris is still proud of his team's efforts and the commitment his seniors have given to this program. Our guys never stopped fighting, which is what I'm most proud of, Harris said. This is a senior class that has really built a strong foundation and has built something that is going to last for a long time. They knew they had a lot of work to do and they accomplished some individual accolades along the way here. But the team and individual stuff They've definitely made their marks on AHSTW Viking basketball. I'm unbelievably proud of these seniors. They've also been great leaders for our underclassmen. We've talked about believing in good programs and not just good teams. Hopefully we can honor these seniors by continuing to display great effort and good basketball in our future. Kyle Sternberg led the Vikings with 12 points. Braden Lund had 8 and Cole Scheffler scored 6. Tate Platt led Des Moines Christian and all players with 18 points. The Vikings end the season with a record of 21-3 and and will graduate seven seniors, including 1,500-point scorer Braden Lund, 1,000-point scorer Kyle Sternberg, Cole Scheffler, Abe McIntosh, Jacob Kuhn, Ryan Wettermeyer, and Aiden Martin. And that is just about all the time we have for today's 
episode of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, the reading here on IRC, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. This has been the Sunday, February 26th edition, is brought to you here on the afternoon of Monday, February 27th. We're almost at the end of the month already. One day left. It's been so good to be here with you. Hope you're having a great afternoon. This is Andrew Halp, your reader, filling in for the Drake College students. Thank you so much for listening for today's reading. Have a great afternoon and straight ahead. <laughs>